Before we start, I know every podcaster says this, and perhaps that sound I can hear is you gritting your teeth while you get through this before we get to the main show. But that rate and review thing we all ask for, it really does make a huge difference. It takes just a few seconds of your time. Not asking you to give five stars, whatever you think of Behind the Crimes, please just leave an honest opinion on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to this. And a review would be amazing. And if you want more videos, images, extra material, you know by now where to go. Follow me at robertsmurphy.substack.com. Now, a quick word of warning. This episode is about an appalling series of sexual assaults. No intimate details are given. But if you think you may be affected, please think twice about listening to this episode. This event happened a long time ago. But it didn't stop the last time I left that, that young man's bedroom. Why would I be scared of him? Because I'm, I'm, you know, 58, 59. Why am I scared of him now? And I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm coming for you. You realise, however bad it is for me, he's fighting for his life here. The worst has happened to me. What 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 can go wrong for me? This is justice. I've got it now. After fifty years. Yeah. Yeah. How long would you wait for justice? What about half a century? Now, my guest today is a former policewoman, Liz Roberts. Now, while her personal story is dark, it is also inspirational. Liz grew up in Bristol in the southwest of England in the 1970s, and her father was a well-known senior police officer in the city. But behind closed doors, in this straight-laced backdrop, Liz's older brother, a boy who was nearly a man, eight years older than her, was abusing her. It was their secret. But Liz had no proof and her memories were only sensory images. She even went on to become the law, serving as a police officer for seven years, but still not having the confidence to report her brother. So back to my question, how long would you wait for justice? And yes, Liz's answer is 50 years. So what changed? How did she do it? And what was it finally like to be able to unmask her own brother? Liz is with me now. Liz, it's lovely to see you again. How are you today? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. And thanks for giving me a chance to talk about this because you, you took the genie out of the bottle uh, um, about a year ago and, and it hasn't gone back in. So, uh, yeah, it's good. It's good to be here. Yes, I interviewed you uh, for television, yeah, just over a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, when you waived your right to anonymity, which is yeah. given to all survivors of, of sexual assault and abuse. Um and your interview really, really stayed with me. It really did. It's one of those things that you do that's just so powerful, how you spoke. And I'm really fascinated to see how you've done, how the process is working. So just tell us a bit, a bit about, take us back to the 1970s. Describe your family dynamic, first of all. Okay, so um, as you mentioned, my father was, um, he retired as a senior police officer. He was head of the murder squad in Bath when he retired in 1981. Um, prior to that, obviously, he, he rose through the ranks. Um, we were a very, very, very strict Catholic family. Um, we lived in, as you say, in, in Knoll, which was, um, it is a, 
uh, a part of Bristol. And uh, my mother was a very um, autocratic, uh, I've, I've referred to her as the toxic glue in the family, um, very much about impressions and, and how the family looks. So very working class, um, jumble cell clothes, hand-me-downs, I have three brothers. Um, Andrew, as you mentioned, was the eldest, or uh, still is, um, eight years older than me. Um, I had two other brothers, one older and one younger. And it was very much divide and rule. Uh, so my father was, say, he was very hardworking. He was out a lot. He didn't seem to have the the social intelligence and the social capacity to manage so many children in a kind and caring sort of way. Mm. It was very much, um, yeah, quite, quite at times violent um, or the fear of. And my mum would use that threat to, to maintain control or try to maintain control over us. Um, added into that, she was very driven towards academia for us. And I think she wanted to live vicariously through her children because back in those days, uh, women got married and then they didn't have careers generally. So um, she pushed us all. I think that's a good thing that she's done in some ways because it's helped me to be where I am today in terms of my careers. But the cost of that was um, this this atmosphere of, of competition within, within the siblings. So this constant feeling of not being good enough, being compared to each other. Um, and then there was the, the, the Catholic influence as well and the, the repressed um, treatment of, of anything to do with nudity, sex. Um, it, was, it was a pretty, yeah, a pretty bleak childhood looking back. Well, even bleaker than that you were assaulted by your brother. Now, I don't think we need necessarily to go into any intimate detail, but what can you say about what happened? Um, I think one of the important things, when people talk about um, child abuse, the word abuse is, is, can be, it gives a, an impression of, of violence mm. in the sense that there are threats involved. And I think one of the things that makes, um, certainly in my instance of sibling sexual abuse, so difficult is there wasn't this threat. There was, I wasn't locked in a room. I wasn't tied up. It was coercion. It was pleading and wheedling. It was, you know, doing nice things for me. Um, and I don't remember, um, I didn't re realise this until the trial, when this came out in the trial, that he used to, groomed me by offering to let me ride on his back because I was absolutely obsessed with horses. So I didn't remember any of that. Mm. And so I can now see how that would have worked. Um, and, and in return for that, I had, I'd have to go to his bedroom and do the foulest things to him and he would do the foulest things to me um, in my safe space, in my home. Um, and if I tried to say no, it would be, oh, well, please, please. And, you know, you haven't got anywhere to run to because you're you're at home. This is your this is meant to be somewhere safe. I didn't have parents that I I felt I could go to. I was scared of them. I thought I'd get into trouble, um, and that was that was it. So you you're basically stuck with nowhere to go. And you were eight so years old at the time. He was fifteen, yeah. nearly sixteen. So he knew 16, yeah. he oh yeah he was yeah. an adult yeah. as near yeah, as damn absolutely. Damage. Yeah, was part, absolutely. Was part of you then, did you think, well, this is just normal. This is what happens because you didn't know any different. Was there something in the back of your mind saying, no, this is wrong or both? I, I, I absolutely knew it was, I was just scared, you, you know, so you, so you don't, 
you don't rationalize it in in the sense of of what's happening and i can remember at the trial the barrister the defense barrister saying to me well you're using words like rape you're using words like assault you're using these words now but you didn't know what that meant of course i didn't know what that meant mm. but i knew by the fact that i was a made to undress in my brother's bedroom when everyone was out of the house that 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 was wrong i knew how it made me feel and you mentioned sensory memories at the start that's 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 what, what how you feel that's what it's like you, you're you're terrified you don't rationalize and think oh i shouldn't be doing this because it's wrong you 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 don't don't want to do it because you're scared to death of it yeah. um and and you just just feel completely unsafe and dread the times when when the house would be empty or he would be be babysitting so um and and going through life you you dissociate you 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 block it out or you just you just accept it you don't necessarily oh i didn't necessarily think well this is normal i didn't think i knew i thought it was normal i i don't think i thought it was normal i think because we had such a, a repressed um, upbringing in terms of sex. You know, um, sex before marriage was a complete taboo. Um, sex was for the procreation of children. So anything to do with that was wrong. I knew, I knew that from, from as long as I can remember. And so Andrew absolutely knew that. Um, and you talk about him, you know, he, him being nearly a man. Back in those days, um, you left school at 15. He he wasn't a schoolboy when this when this was going on. I can remember being in his bedroom and there was no school uniform hanging up. He was a he was a, he was an apprentice. He was a a young working man starting to earn his living. So this isn't a this isn't a kid that these days is glued to their Xbox playing games. This was a man that was about to go out and earn his keep. And you couldn't tell anyone, or you didn't tell anyone. No. No, uh, no, I couldn't tell anyone. Um, Even though your dad uh, was the police. Well, yes. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. Um, I, again, you don't, you don't logic that. Um, you don't logic into, into the. Well, I've got to tell somebody. You, you just can't. So what you do is you, you, you go into survival mode, and survival mode for me was being very well behaved, keeping my head down, being very introvert, very shy. Um, I look. I've actually found uh, in the last sort of twelve months. I was going through some some papers after my mum died, and I found some of my school reports of when I uh, around the time this happened. And I I found um, you know, so, so I'm very quiet. Don't have any confidence. You know, teachers saying, well, she does know it, but she won't speak up. Um, she 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 should have more faith in herself. I just went inward. Uh, I can remember being a bridesmaid um, again. I was un under ten, and um, you know it's it's a standing joke, isn't it, that the best man of the wedding um, is photographed with the bridesmaid, and the best man was was an adult, and that, that was me, this little girl in my blue velvet dress, and and it was oh come on, you've got to give the best man a kiss. Absolutely no way, yeah. you know. And I was made fun of. I was mocked for the fact that I wouldn't let. I wouldn't let people close to me. And because my my parents weren't tactile, I don't remember being hugged and cuddled and, and loved physically by my parents. Um, you, I just became this very isolated, very, very lonely, yes, but 
there's safety in loneliness, Rob. You know, that's how that's how you survive. <clears throat> you keep it to yourself and you keep just get on with it. And how did that manifest itself as you grew up, as you became a teenager and you started in your early 20s, adulthood? Um, I just had this total self-loathing, um, a combination of, of Andrew be, living in that household, uh, the high standards of my parents, um i i developed an eating disorder when i was probably 14 15 um had a i, I can remember i can you know i have, wasn't able to mention that ever i was so ashamed of that until um well until i started to talk about it now then i discovered the joys of laxatives and i would abuse those um for, for years that went on for um just yeah, just just uh, trying to be this perfect person and and just punishing myself because I wasn't. So you were holding this trauma, this dark, dark chapter of your childhood, but then you become a police officer, I guess, in your late teens, early twenties. You serve for you know not just for a year or two, you, seven years yeah. nearly, wasn't yeah. it? So that's yeah. a long time. At any point, did it occur to you that you could <clears throat> a then that what had happened to you was against the law? B, could you do anything about it? Could you report, Andrew? I mean, bearing in mind this was the early early eighties, you you can't, you don't. Um, and part of that is is to do with the fact that it's it's done within the family by somebody that you love, and that was met, that loves you, um, and you and you minimise it. And I think this is one of the cruelest things about sibling sexual abuse is that it happens in a place where you're supposed to be safe by people that are c c supposed to be caring for you and love you. So, so you have this, society has this um, vision of, of, of sexual assault and rape happening by, to, by strangers. And I, and I was asked this in the trial, if I, I think he was sitting in there. Um, most people think that, that rape is, is, is about stranger danger. You know these things don't happen there, and if they do, it's it's done in a in an environment. <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that's that's with nice things. You know, I had to ride on his back. As uh, you know, what, what was bad about that? You know, so so it's confusing you. So you don't you don't see it for what it is, and you because your brain as a child blocks it, locks these memories away because you phys you actually couldn't survive if you had to relive that every single day. So you, so you box it off. Um, but in, inside of me was this anger and this 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 desire for justice and this passion for wanting to help people. I didn't join the police force um, because I, I you know I, I wanted a uniform and I wanted to have the authority. I just wanted to to be there. I wanted to see people punished for what they'd done, but I also wanted to be there and, and support support the victims as well. So I didn't see myself as, as a. I just. I met, and as you as you as you grow up, and as you go through, and within the police force, you work. I worked, um, did some attachments to policemen's units. Um, the cases there were um, parental abuse, uncles, aunts, siblings, neighbours. You know, child abuse, adult abuse, this kind of stuff. It's almost so because it's so concentrated, so much of it. Again, you minimise it and think, well. That's life. That's it happens to everybody. Did you find yourself being able to empathise, perhaps in a way, with these victims, 
better maybe than some of your colleagues because of your secret knowledge of what you've been through or did you find it harder to deal with them? I felt uh, um, there are a couple of incidents that, that I, I can remember. Uh, one, I, I just saw this this lady who had been on a night out and um, was, was raped on her way home. And she was raped by, um, and I'm not just going to say she alleged she was raped. I absolutely mm. believe she was raped. Mm. And there's no question about it. I believe she was raped. Um, and she reported it to the police and, and, and the, the uh, police surgeon or the FME, as they are now, examined her and, and all of this. And Within a very short space of time, the tables turned and, and suddenly the, the victim became the perpetrator kind of thing. But she's sort of, well, she was out drinking. She, what was she wearing? And suddenly she was, she was asking for it. And, and needless to say, there was no further action taken in her case. And this was a lady that was a clerical assistant in her early 20s that lived at home and um, had gone out just for a night out with some friends. And she'd met this guy and, and it had gone badly wrong. And... After that, the police said, not only not, sorry, no further action. Well, you know, you really shouldn't have been doing that, mm. blaming her, you know, victim blaming, as we now call it. Within months, uh, she was a regular um, detainee at the police station oh, for being drunk and disorderly, drunk and incapable. Her life absolutely fell apart. She lost her job. And, and that was our fault. Yeah. You know, that was that was our fault. And, um, you know, I found that really hard, hard to, to take. I really did. Um, and you had you, another you were, incident, didn't you, um, towards well, at the very end of your career? Just tell us uh, about that, because that is a, a moment of drama, really, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think what what led to that. So you, so you, you get through life and you, you, you deal with things. Um, but what I've realised now is that anything that's, normal life throws at you for, for people with complex PTSD. And this is what I have and millions of other people have is, uh, is that you, you um, exaggerate your, your brain exaggerates normal life, life traumas. So what, what's a, what's an unfortunate event or see, even if it, how, how, how serious it is becomes the end of the world. It's a catastrophe. So I, um, I was working one night and I, I was involved in a police Chase and I, I suffered an injury, I had a car crash. And for me, I walked away just, but it was the end of the world for me because I felt deeply ashamed that that happened. I felt I was going to be blamed even though it wasn't my fault. And I, I had a bit, a bit of a breakdown. So I was off sick for a while and then, and then I came back to work and I was put in, this, in the um, station office. My sick leave before that had been exemplary and then it, it was just terrible. So they, they put me in the um, station office, um, kind of so-called light duties with anyone that's, that can remember when, when police stations had front offices, they're never quiet. And it was a Sunday afternoon and this lady came in and with her daughter, who was I think nine or 10. And she said, I'd like to report that um, my daughter's been um, assaulted, sexually assaulted by our neighbor and it's been going on for quite a long time. And I just felt like someone had, had tasered me. You know, I was like, oh, right, okay. Um, 
put you know you put your professional face on and i asked her to take a seat in the waiting area and i said somebody somebody will be with you in a minute and knowing full well that as it was a sunday afternoon and my station was on the suburbs it wasn't central there were i was the only policewoman on duty within that area so i would be the one dealing with it and um i went into the station sergeant i said this is lady out there this is explain the story and and i said so i'm just letting you know because i'm i'm going home now and i picked up my coat and my handbag i went out through the front door i didn't go through the staff exit i just left and that was the last i ever last day i ever worked as a police officer just couldn't take any more just couldn't no. just couldn't just just and i froze you know that's that's it that's one of your your just your responses but it's, it's only been in the last sort of three years since I've, I've sought professional help that i understand you know why and i understand what that was because even then i didn't think i can't cope with this because that happened to me. I didn't think that. It's just that, that it triggers something. It reminds your your brain acts automatically and it responds in the way that I did back in back in that bedroom and I froze. I was completely helpless and completely useless. I felt weak, I felt stupid, and completely the wrong person to help that person that needed me and I couldn't do it. And that, and then, then, then comes the self-blame and the self-shame and downward spiral yet again. So you left the police. You you became a you were also were you a mum at this point, but you became a mum as as well, didn't you? You've got two daughters. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and how I was didn't. that? How was how was that becoming a mum? You know, on on which is oh, yeah. the, one of the toughest things to to ever do become a parent. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I wasn't a mum at that point. I became a mum after I left the police force. And um, yeah, I, I can remember when my first daughter was born, I was just, oh God, I've given birth to another victim here. Mm. Yeah, I can remember thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to protect this baby? And and at that time, as I said, this was, this was 1990. Um, so this was only a couple of years after my accident. So I was still in it and I thought I was doing a sort of okay, but I was going through a divorce as well, uh, which was my instigation and was the right thing to do. Um, I had to be away from that, that environment with my baby, but you just feel how, how, how on earth can you protect it? It's inevitable that, that someone's going to hurt her. And also yeah. at this moment, so this would be nearly 20 years after what had happened to you as a, as an yeah. eight year old. So you're here, you're going through this kind of crisis, like a day-by-day crisis with your career as a mum, as a wife. You know. On the other hand, there's your brother who's living the dream. What was that like to have this duality between uh, th- th- this, this juxtaposition between the two of you at family events, uh, uh, the, 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 the difference in fortunes? Yeah, it's, this is, again, we, we've sort of touched on the... the complexities and the injustice of sibling sexual abuse and i think for most people they'll say well what what happened what did he actually do you know what what and you think about what happened in that bedroom as the abuse well that's that's wrong that's the start of the abuse because what carries on through your life is 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 grooming he wants to remain where he is and he will do anything he can to put you down so he would he 
grew effectively grew my parents he became the 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 head of the family when when my dad died and then when my mum died he was power of attorney for both of them you know he's put on this pedestal um and i was seen as the as the awkward angry sister that that, that avoided weddings avoided uh christenings that 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 just wasn't very sociable and 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 all i actually what i was doing was reinforcing that by my behavior yeah. you know but he was the one that was fueling that behavior so i was the self-fulfilling prophecy he was the golden child and i was the problem and there was no uh, any chance of justice at that point was there well no because i i um one of the, the the various episodes in my life where these crises happen um that become catastrophic I um, confided in a very close friend of mine who I still visit now. He's a he's a he's ironically a Catholic priest, but that's not why he's my friend. And um, I, I told him about this, and he said, "You you know, you really must tell your tell your parents because he knew my parents. He knew Andrew. He was our Catholic priest back when I was six, so he's known me all my life." And he said, "You really must tell your parents this." And my youngest daughter was was a year old at the time. And I thought, okay, I will. So I would have been in my late twenties then, and I did. I went to went to go and, and speak to them, and I, I kind of threw the information at them because I I, I didn't find it easy to talk to them, mm. and um, I said Andrew would abuse me when I was a child, and uh, they they sort of looked a bit shocked and said, well, surely it was just kids messing around. And I could just feel that, like I was a volcano. This lava just—you know—it's never far away. The lava, you know, mm-hmm. and just, just, just bubbling. And I said, I knew you'd say that. I said, he's eight years older than me. And I think they realised then um, what they'd said. And uh, and uh, he's, they said, um, well, you know, it was just surely it was just kids. And I just got really angry, and and um, I walked out and left and went home. And um, didn't live too far away from them. These are the days when you had actually phones plugged in the wall and but no mobile phones. And they rang me. My phone was ringing when I got home, and I knew it'd be them. And they said, "Okay, we well we do believe you." Um, and they asked if if they, if um, I knew whether he'd done it to anybody else. And I said, well, "You'll have to find that out for yourself." And um, and that was it. That <laughs> Never was it. mentioned. Yeah. That was it. That was it. That was as that far was as it, it. went. Yeah, and they went from there to over over the years putting him on this pedestal, and they never asked me about it again. And um, and that was yeah, that was it. That was that was my justice. Um, my my father at the time, both of them were very, as I say, very involved in the Catholic Church. And because of my dad's position as as a police officer, he was the safeguarding lead for the for the local church. And yet behind, uh, his own cl- behind his own closed <laughs> yeah. doors. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, it would take until not just the death of your dad, but also the death of your mum as well, wasn't there, for things to start yeah. changing. Just just talk us through that, what happened there. So, start, things started to ra- unravel uh, about five years ago when my mum was still alive. And um, because of things that were going on in Andrew's personal life, that my mum had kept from me, and um, and when I, when I found out that she'd kept them from me, and, and actually kept them from me because Andrew had begged her not to tell me, 
um, I, I just again this this rage suddenly came up because I knew that he asked her to to keep his secret uh, because he knew that how I would feel about it because he was not behaving very well in his marriage, shall we say? And um, and she was protecting him from me. <laughs> So, um, and I said, why do you think he doesn't want me to know about this? And she said, well, because because of, you know, your past life in terms of my mar first marriage. And I, no, I think we both know what that's about. And so it, it just all became about him and his, his terrible thing, that he, life that he was going through. And then that was the beginning of the, my mum's decline so effectively his behavior killed my actually led to the start of the decline of my mum um and um anyway when she passed away i he became power of attorney he was executive of the will fortunately one of my my other brother my youngest brother was also executive of the will and i this time i'd i'd, I'd really crashed you know i'd had some bad ones before but this was really really bad and I'd, I'd finally got some some sort of professional help, and I'd started to have EMDR, um, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is a very intense form of psychotherapy. And I was struggling with it because um, all these emails would suddenly arrive about probate and things like that, and they were innocuous emails and innocuous a family WhatsApp group for the first time ever. And every time you see this this smiling face, you know, and you. I can't deal with this. So I decided to, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't handle this anymore. Um, and I wrote him a letter. Uh, it was not the first victim impact statement. I've written three altogether. The first one was back 30 years ago, which I never sent. The second one was one that I did send in, in, that, in that summer. And I outlined in this letter everything that he'd done to me and what, what impact it's had on my life and how, how, how I've struggled. And I asked him um, to respect my wishes. And I said, I've thought about reporting it to the police over the years, but knowing how the police in those days handled these things, and I didn't have the emotional energy and strength to, to do that, um, to leave me alone. I didn't ever want to hear from him again. And if he, if he ignored my requests, I would reconsider my, my position. And I, I wrote this letter. I wrote to my other siblings as well. I didn't give the detail that I gave them, that I gave to Andrew, because I was worried about getting into trouble because I couldn't prove anything. But I said enough that this is serious. I'm, I'm done now. I'm done. And I expected my two brothers to say, shut the door on your way out, because I didn't have a relationship with them mm -hmm. either over the years. And... Um, and that's not what happened. So they started to ask, speak to Andrew, so what's going on with Liz? Why, what, you know, what, something serious is going on. Um, and he, he was sticking the knife into them with me again, saying what a, you know, that I was just trying to ruin his life and what a bad person I was and for whatever reason. And, um, and then he decided to ignore my wishes and he wrote back. And... Uh, so I found in my junk folder because I blocked him and I didn't realize back in those days that if you block someone from email, you still receive the emails. It just goes straight to spam. And I was looking for something one day and looked in my spam folder and there's this, his, his avatar there grinning at me, like, you know, uh, like an idiot. And I, I was like, what on earth? Um, and it was a partial confession. And there were about five lines 
abetting to some of it, mm. making himself three years younger, which would have put me at a five, you know, or younger than that. Yeah. And, and then the rest of it was about him and how terrible his life had been and how our parents had, had beaten him and, and how this had happened and how he'd been this and he'd been that. And I thought, you know, this is just outrageous. Um, but I had something there. He'd admitted uh, doing things to myself and another person. And um, that, you know, it was when he was a lot younger and uh, the rest of it was all about him, it was about how bad his life had been and how our parents had been and um, how this had happened to him as a child and none of which was ever substantiated. Yes. And, um, but I had, some, I had a piece of paper. I had something then to go to the police with. And when you saw that, did you think immediately, I've got you, I'm going to take you to the police? Or did you think it's a confession, it happened 50 years ago, there's no DNA, there's no cameras, there's no forensics... What are my chances, really? I, first of all, was, I was just shocked that, of the arrogance of somebody that's had this letter that was five pages long being sent to them, not knowing how, what that would have cost me to have written that letter in the first place, let alone post it. And to give them an ultimatum, I only asked him to do one thing, and that was not to contact me. Mm. And the the complete disregard for me as a, as I was then 58-year-old woman was exactly the same disregard that he had for me when I was eight. And I was raging. Mm. So um, I, I sort of spoke to my family, my husband. Um, I spoke to my... Uh, to my uh, other brothers and um, yeah, I thought I've, I've got no choice now. I have to do something because I knew enough that I had something and, and I knew how even in fairly recent um, situations like this, there's, there's rarely any evidence yes. of it. Now I had something, I had no choice but to go to the police. I didn't necessarily think it would go very far, but I had to have somebody speak to him and I had to get him out of my life. And when you went to the police, you know, as someone who knew the law, albeit from back in the early 90s, early to mid 1980s, um, you know, I think conviction rates are, are down at around one, two, three, four, five percent in the UK. And here is something from 50 years ago, though. Um, and apart from this piece of paper and the corroboration that you've given to other people over the years, they didn't have a lot to go on, really, did they? So, so what were you thinking your chances are that this would develop into anything further, that you would actually see some justice in the form of a trial or a sentence? Um, very, very little. Um, and a lot of that also was, was an actual not realising how far, certainly even the Somerset police yeah. have come in terms of how proactive they are in this sort of case. I had no idea of, about that. So I, I didn't expect anything, really. Um, I had, I had the, the, the confession. They said that's more, more evidence than they ever get, really. really. So they were very happy. And um, so, yeah, they took it very seriously. But the, the best thing for me was the first person I reported it to said, I just want you to know that I believe you. 
Those were the first words that were said, and I'm sorry this has happened to you. And I just felt this, you know, this feeling of relief, that because you minimize it all your life, and for somebody to be as outraged as you are that this has happened, you, you, you start to think, well, yeah, it was, it was bad. It was as bad as that. And I have every right to feel angry and I have every right to feel upset and, and to have this trail of destruction through my life that's robbed me of lots of things that I could have enjoyed that I didn't. And you dealt with um, Becky, didn't you? Becky Norton, the brilliant Becky. Becky Norton, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Somerset Police who deals with us every day and she she's a remarkable yeah. investigator, isn't she? And yeah. uh, how was that process? T- talk us through what, what happened next. If it helps other people who might have been something through something similar themselves, talk us through the steps uh, to, to court. Well, bearing in mind also this was just after lockdown, so the, the court processes were very, very slow. And um, But Operation Bluestone um, was something that Avon and Somerset were piloting, and this, this is a dedicated unit that deals with sexual assault and, and specialises in, in non-recent sexual assault. So Becky took it extremely seriously, and I was also put in touch with, uh, in fact, I wasn't put in touch with them, they contacted me. I was given an ISVA, which is an independent sexual violence ad- advisor, who works for a charity, and they guide you through the, the the legal side of things. They don't talk about uh, the uh, the evidence, but they they they're there in court if you want them there. They, they're, they're the point of contact to tell you how, how the investigation is proceeding. Now, because I, I gelled with Becky, I had a very good relationship with her very quickly, I tended to, to go down that route with her and, and communicate directly with her. Mm. But when it came to going to court, um, I had an ISVA with me, uh, and that was, that was amazing. That was absolutely amazing. Um, uh, so the other thing that happened was I was offered and I took a 24, I think it was, free, free therapy sessions or free counselling sessions. When it came to court, before court, he admitted 10 counts, didn't he? Four against you and six against someone else, uh, yeah. another underage uh, girl from the 1970s, yeah. uh, sexual assaults, but he denied two counts of rape. And that's rape. what the court hearing was about. And those counts yeah. were against you. What was it like having to go to court and then give evidence to be in the same room as the brother who 50 years before had assaulted you. He's there in the dock. You're there behind a screen in the witness box. Just talk me through that. It sounds so dramatic. Uh, well, part of the the ISVA's job is, is to help you prepare for the court itself and you are invited to, to do a, a court visit beforehand. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been in a courtroom so and, and certainly I've, I've given evidence many times in the past but but not as, as, the, as a sort of the sort of victim and you offered spe- sort of special measures so you're offered to do it by via video link or or have a screen or or nothing, and I opted at that point uh, for a screen. There's a lot of illogical feelings about well, it's not illogical really, but when you look at it, why, why would I be scared of him? Because I'm I'm, you know, 58, 59. Why am I scared of him now? It's it's all this child is there. The child comes back. You know, the eight year old was scared of him. And uh, that was that was the difficulty. So I, 
I had to have, I felt I had to, had to have the screen. Um, I did the pre, pre-trial visit, which was really good. And I would say to anybody that's offered that to take it, but to give yourself plenty of time before you, you, you go. I, I did my trial visit the week before and that was way too close because I went into meltdown thinking I'm nowhere near ready for this. Mm. Um, and, but for me, what helped was um, talking to myself. I, I, I've got an app, app recorder on my phone, so I would ask myself questions and I would you know just just you just build yourself up and you get yourself into try and get yourself into a mindset and i've talked through this with a a few survivors now that have contacted me after after my trial um but but the weird thing was um because i kind of got myself to this this place in my head when i thought you you realize however bad it is for me he's fighting for his life here you know he's he's the worst has happened to me what 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 can go wrong for me right yes he he could be found not guilty but he knows he knows what the truth is i know what the truth is those that love me know what the truth is um and what's he gonna what's he got left after this mm. so as as the day as the day approached and, and you get yourself wound up and then the day of the trial i actually did some of my my recordings and I thought I actually feel free. I was I, I took the train because I thought I'm, I don't want to drive and I and I just thought, you know, I'm I'm coming for you, you know. I'm really really when it it was totally different when I got in the court, <laughs> you know, because that was like oh, but I just felt no, this is this is justice. I've got it now. After fifty years. Yeah, yeah. In the trial, the jury, as is so difficult to prove anything, uh, particularly the allegations, they couldn't make their mind up on one of the charges. He was acquitted of the other charge, but he was sentenced for the 10 counts that he admitted in part down to that confession. And he received uh, 225 hours of community service. He's on a two-year community order and he was ordered to pay compensation to yourself and the other, the victim. The judge said the repressed voices of children have now resonated through half a century of suffering and turmoil. I mean, sorry, that, that gets me every time I read that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was that, that like, to have that done, the, 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 the court process over, move on? Or can you? Well, yeah. Um... Before before the trial, I had a um, a meeting with my barrister and Becky, and I asked about uh, uh, the situation regarding anonymity. And as you said right at the start, victims of sexual assault are are, are automatically guaranteed lifelong an- anonymity. And my fear um, about the outcome of this was what happens next. Because you, 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 it's like everything's racing towards this trial date and the sentencing and all of this. And, and who's going to be left after this? Because you, do, you, do, you really don't know who you are. I didn't know who I was. Um, I feel I do now, but I didn't know who I was. And I was, re- I was really scared that um, when that, whatever happened in the trial, even if it was a guilty, I, you're just still there on a cliff edge. But where do you go with that? Okay, well done. You know, you've got that. What happens next? You know, who are you? 
So um, I asked Jenny, uh, our barrister, and said, what happens? She said, well, don't worry. You've got lifelong anonymity. Nobody will need to know your name. And I just felt this overwhelming feeling of, of shame when she said that. And she didn't mean to shame me, but I, I said, you've just made me feel really terrible here because what if I want to talk about it? Because what, I, what you worry about is that you get your justice and then what? He's going to scurry on back to his life and he's going to reinvent himself as he has done all his life. And people like that are very good at doing that. And, 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 and then what? So I was more obsessed with doing what I'm doing now with you mm. than I was about the outcome of the trial. And I didn't realise that until the sentencing hearing. If you remember, you know, the first thing the judge said was reporting restrictions haven't been lifted. Mm. And we had to so, fight so for them. We had to fight for you to be able to... We absolutely had to. We had to go back to court. To go back again. For me to be able to talk to you and yeah. say, it was my brother that did this. Yeah. You know, there's the, the more, more injustice was that, hang on a minute, you know, I've, I've trusted you, the authorities, with the worst thing that can happen to any child. And you've said, don't worry, you know, we're going to give you a big legal hug and we're going to look after you and we're going to pat you on the head and then we're going to um, fight for your, fight your corner and then you can go away again and we'll move on to the next one. I, I, no, no, that wasn't going to happen. So I didn't hear the judge's remarks when he read them out the first time I, all i heard was that yeah and i looked at you and 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 i, I what's going on here so it was only later when i re when i realized that um what, when i read that i i, I thought the judge was amazing yeah he the was judge great. was absolutely superb he's good um and that was the most important thing was this this is justice for me now yes so you waived your anonymity uh, uh and you've been interviewed by myself and other journalists as well haven't you over yes. the last year yeah. and you've yeah. done a lot of work campaigning uh for uh victims of of serious sexual assault and in particular sibling sexual assault yeah tell us i'm take this in two parts firstly what's that meant for you to be able to do that to help with your rehabilitation and secondly sibling sexual assault i don't think people quite get a how big uh an issue it is and also how hidden it is just by its very nature. So there's three parts to that question there, complicated. Firstly, you, how have you found the last year? How do you think I look after you? You look brilliant. You saw me a year ago. <laughs> I know, you, you, you look <laughs> well, about 10 years younger. I'm looking for compliments there, but, I, but, but you, you know, I, when I, I look back to how I was, and, and you, you, you speak to, to DC Norton, yeah. and she sat in on, on the, the, the TV interview I did with you, and, and she said, I, I just can't believe, because she saw me, uh, she interviewed me for, the, for my police interview, and she saw me go through that. Yeah. She saw me at one of my worst, worst points, and, and she's sort of had to sort of hold my hands through, through two years it took for it to go to trial and the highs and the lows that go with that and the delays and, and the waiting for the, the, the plea hearings and what you can do and, and this kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's liberating. It's absolutely, people talk about recovery. I don't know. I don't want to go back. Recovery means that you, you're going back to where you were. Mm. No, because I wasn't, I don't want to be that person. Um, it, it's, 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 a, it's a form of healing and it's like a being reborn, if you like. So I'm, I'm, I'm fine. One of the things that scared me, as I said, 
uh, a minute ago was I didn't know who would be at the end of it. First of all, there's this relief that, okay, all of the bad things that, that you felt and, and, and how you've behaved and, and the person that you've been and you push people away. Oh, there's a reason for it. It's a symptom of something that wasn't my fault. So the initial um, feeling about that is huge relief and, oh, great, I'm not going mad. But then you think, okay, so if I take that part of me away and I take that part of me away, what's left? Mm. So what the last year has done for me is to help me realize what was there underneath and what is left and what has always been there because I don't I think the ability to talk um and the ability to communicate this has always has obviously clearly always been there and so to be able to to be free to say it and and have people wanting to hear it as well is 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 validating and that's what we want we want validating we want to be believed we want to be people to acknowledge this is terrible because it is happening all the time and i i can remember um it was the day after the itv interview and i was sitting in my car outside our local co-op and there was a lady from the community i've known for a very long time and um not not close friends but you know <laughs> just just neighbors and it was absolutely chucking it down with rain i'm sitting in the in the, in the car waiting to drive off and the, she taps on the glass and she's getting wet through you know in the rain she's, she's i saw you on the news last night she said I, I i i can't believe it she's i never knew you know first people think i'm so sorry well it's not your fault you know and, and you you only know about it because i'm telling you about it so it's not it's like you found this thing out i'm telling you which gives me control okay that's 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 it I, the power is with, was with me to keep to tell you which is real i didn't realize how important that that part is and she said um oh it happened to so and so and and the number of people that have contacted me and you think people would cross the road and avoid you they don't it's the opposite they come over and they say God, you know, I saw and this happened to it's everywhere, Rob. It's everywhere. It's and happening now. You yes. know, as we speak, it's happening now. And it is and, so furtive, secretive. Yeah. The only people who would know probably are the the perpetrator and the victim, and the victim, particularly as its sibling, it might it's be very young, it's a child, won't even know what's going on when it happens. No. no. And and I'm really do you know what? I'm really thank you for using the word perpetrator because there seems to be um, a lot more awareness. And you, you were talking about how common it is. People are starting to talk about it. I've got some really, really amazing, new, my new family, my new survivor family um, of, of siblings, uh, sexual abuse survivors are now sort of saying the same things that, you know, this, this event happened a long time ago, but it didn't stop the last time I left that, young man's bedroom it, the torture and the abuse carries on okay so this is why it's he's a perpetrator he was a perpetrator as a as a an adolescent and he was a perpetrator he still is a perpetrator for me because he hasn't he hasn't told the truth in my eyes okay so he's continuing to exert that negative influence and create his own narrative He's not been honest. He's not come come clean. So he's still abusing me, as far as I'm concerned. So the the, the professionals um, will use. There's a big big. There are lots of arguments about language, and one of the, the one of the 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 phrases that's used now is the child who harmed and the child who was harmed. 
Well, that, I don't relate to that at all. He was a perpetrator. He knew what he was doing, and he continued to be a perpetrator by making the rest of my adult life a, a misery. If you... He was not a child who harmed, and I wasn't a child who was harmed. Do you have any idea, as someone who's worked in the sector now, for, or, or, or has advised and has talked and has been on Women's Hour and advises the Metropolitan Police as you do as well now, and all the other things that you do, or the incredible things that you do, do you have any idea as to the scale, the extent? It's, it's the, I know it's the most common. I know it's the most common. So um, every, everyone, no, um, as far as the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Police, I'm part of the Community Engagement Project, so I'm, st- I haven't, I'm going to do that next year, so I don't want to speak out of that. Yeah. But yeah, it, there's, the problem with this is there is research out there that says, um, yes, it's, it could be one in four families, it could be this, it could be that. The problem is you're not you're not going to know because the research that you do is on people that have admitted it or people that have reported it and it doesn't happen nobody knows so because it doesn't get reported and it's not just the abuse from the from the perpetrator that causes that silence it's the family too it can be parents that want to keep the secret my parents went to the grave i'm sure without telling anybody about what happened to their daughter at the hands of their son. They never actually asked me actually what he did and how serious it was. They never asked. If so, you, sorry. No, if you could go back to eight-year-old Liz now, know what you do, what would you say to her? Well, I, I, did, I talk to her all the time now. Uh, I do, because I, I recognise, because she's still here. You see, that's that's that sounds really really freaky and really creepy, but she pops up a lot because my my response to certain situations is is so in, ingrained in me because that was my my survival strategy as an eight year old that that becomes your default setting. So I can, when I feel myself getting emotional about things, you know, like you just when you when you talked about what the judge said, you know, that's it. I would say. Um, I've, I've forgiven her. I couldn't look after her then. She couldn't look after. It wasn't her fault. I, I thought it, it was it was my fault, or I couldn't talk about it because either I wouldn't be believed, or I'd be told not to not to repeat it, or you're exaggerating, or even though I wasn't known as a, a bad a liar, or you know, it, it would have been dismissed. So I, 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 I forget. I understand why I couldn't now. And I've forgiven myself for knowing that I couldn't even do it while my mum was alive. And there, are, you know, that there are millions of people here that will that will resonate with what we can't talk when mum and dad are alive. You know, we can't do this because I'm still that eight, I'm still that child to my mum, even when though she was ninety one when she died. I'm still she's still my mum, and I'm still scared of her. You know, even though she's this big and I'm this big, and you know, that, that's that's the power of a parent and a sibling over over a, a, a vulnerable child and it, it it doesn't go liz i could talk to you all day but uh <laughs> but you are Sorry you know your that. story is so um affecting but also inspirational as well so thank you so much for your thank time you today. thank you anytime If you've been affected by issues raised by Liz Roberts in this conversation, there are links to support groups in both the UK and North America in the show notes. And have you rated and reviewed Behind the Crimes yet? Please do. And subscribe for free 
at robertsmurphy.substack.com.